Today we're going to read the entirety of Isaiah 60. It's a vision given to the people of a future time. So let's just hear and be reminded of a little bit of background. This text was written to the exiles who had returned from Babylon to Jerusalem, and it's a rough season. The city was in ruins. There was conflict between those who remained and those who had been forced to go and return. In addition, the people were divided among themselves about how to worship and who exactly could serve God in the rituals of their community. The words before this are very dark. They're an indictment against the people. There's no peace, Isaiah 59 says. There's no peace. The roads of justice are crooked. There's no truth. The people yearn for God's presence, which the Lord knows. The chasm is so large. And then bursting on the scene are the words that we read today. Words I'm sure that the people very much would have wanted to hear. God breaks into their world to shine light, not just for them, but for all people, for all time. It's not entirely clear, of course, who this is exactly for. We know it is a picture of Zion, of Jerusalem, the holy city. The people would have read it in that time as the physical city of Jerusalem, we read it also for the future city, the one who promises to deliver those who trust him. Our, our, our story ends in a city, the city of God. So this is an invitation to imagine what we cannot see yet and hope in the God who keeps his word. So as I read this poetic vision of the future, I invite you to ponder what you think Isaiah is preparing the people for. Isaiah 61 through 22. Arise, shine, for your light has come, and the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For darkness shall cover the earth, and thick darkness the peoples. But the Lord will arise upon you, and his glory will appear over you. Nations shall come to your light, and kings to the brightness of your dawn. Lift up your eyes and look around. They all gather together. They come to you. Your sons shall come from far away, and your daughters shall be carried on their nurses' arms. Then you shall see and be radiant. Your heart shall thrill and rejoice, because the abundance of the sea shall be brought to you. The wealth of the nation shall come to you. A multitude of camels shall cover you. The young camels of Midian and Ephah and all those from Sheba shall come. They shall bring gold and frankincense and shall proclaim the praise of the Lord. All the flocks of Kedar shall be gathered to you. The rams of Nebaioth shall minister to you. They shall be acceptable on my altar and I will glorify my glorious house. Did we end it there? That's all right. We're going to keep going. It's in your Bible. I thought I told people, but maybe I didn't. I'm going to own that. All right. Here we go. 8 through 22. Who are these that fly like a cloud and like doves to their windows? For the coastland shall wait for me, the ships of Tarshish first, to bring your children from far away, their silver and gold with them, for the name of the Lord your God and for the Holy One of Israel, because he has glorified you. Foreigners shall build up your walls, and their kings shall minister to you. For in my wrath I struck you down, but in my favor I had mercy on you. Your gates shall always be open, day and night they shall not be shut, so that nations shall bring you their wealth with their kings led in procession. 
For the nation and kingdom that will not serve you shall perish. Those nations shall be utterly laid waste. The glory of Lebanon shall come to you, the cypress, the plain, and the pine, to beautify the place of my sanctuary, and I will glorify where my feet rest. The descendants of those who oppress you shall come, bending low to you, and all who despise you shall bow down at your feet. They shall call you the city of the Lord, the Zion of the Holy One of Israel. Whereas you have been forsaken and hated, with no one passing through, I will make you majestic forever, a joy from age to age. You shall, you shall suck the milk of nations, you shall suck the breasts of kings, and you shall know that I, the Lord, am your Savior and your Redeemer, the Mighty One of Jacob. Instead of bronze, I will bring gold. Instead of iron, I will bring silver. Instead of wood, bronze. Instead of so stones, iron. I will appoint peace as your overseer and righteousness as your taskmaster. Violence shall be no more in your land devastation or destruction within your borders. You shall call your walls salvation and your gates praise. The sun shall no longer be by your light for by day, nor for brightness shall the moon give light to you by night. But the Lord will be your everlasting light and your God will be your glory. Your sun shall no more go down or your moon withdraw itself. For the Lord will be your everlasting light, and your days of mourning shall be ended. Your people shall all be righteous. They shall possess the land forever. They are the shoot that I planted the work of my hands, so that I may be glorified. The least of them shall be a clan, and the smallest one a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will accomplish it quickly. Oh God, thank you for these words. These words that the people would have heard straight from you. Give us ears to hear, Lord. Ears to hear what your spirit is saying to us today. Amen. As I read this future vision of God, very much like the holy city, the new book of, of the new city of Jerusalem, I'm reminded of a story that I've told before, but it fits and takes us where we need to go, so I'm going to tell it again, and some of you haven't heard it. One day in the early 1990s, early in the morning, Pastor Denny was getting ready for preschool chapel. He was standing right here. That was what he did. He would bring out the box, and he would be sorting the flannel uh, for the kids patiently, probably enjoying a little bit of quiet, and I interrupted his piece, which is something that I often did. Probably in ripped jeans and red keds, because that was kind of my outfit then. And I had a pronouncement to make, and um, I was looking for some deep theological insight. Something is bothering me, I told him. Sorting through the flannel and not looking up, he said, what is that? Not wanting to shock him too much, remember right now I'm in my 20s. I said, well, I think that heaven sounds boring and kind of dreadful, and I don't really want to go there. Now, I'm not sure what I expected. A grand theological explanation beginning with the creation account and spinning the entire arc of scripture to get to the glorious, if somewhat confusing and scary, scene in Revelation. Maybe I expected some concern for the eternal state of my soul. 
Compassion? I don't know. What I didn't expect was laughter. <laughs> Not the kind that you know you're being made fun of, but the kind that just bubbles out because you can't help it and you think that the person in front of you is maybe ridiculous. But what it did is it showed me that I was going to be okay and that my soul wasn't bound for perdition. And then we unpacked a little bit what the conversation I was having was about. Now, I was thinking about that iconic moment in my spiritual formation because while these verses are a picture God's people would have held on to in a physical sense, it conjures up a heavenly image for us. And as such, I believe that it brings us tension automatically. Perhaps not the kind of tension that we talk about very much, but usually that is there a little bit underneath the surface. You see, there's tension in how we think about heaven, about what we want to be true, about how we live in relationship to it, as well as the ambivalent feelings we sometimes have about the afterlife in general. Now, perhaps this is a tension because the vision of perfection is far from our reality. Amen? And since we haven't experienced it, it's hard for us to imagine or kind of live toward it. For many of us, it isn't even a motivating factor in our lives. We have a hard enough time finding actual joy and contentment here without thinking much about what the next realm is going to look like. And pastors do their hardest to try and get us excited about it and to inspire our hearts to be ready for it. But I wonder sometimes if thinking too far in the future actually causes us anxiety. So we focus on the known quantity of living on earth. But why, why do we use words like boring to describe it? I mean, that was not an original thought I had, although I was fairly certain that it was. But why boring? Because we lack imagination, because we can't control it, because everything in our world ends and heaven is an eternal kind of vibe, because we can't even imagine perfection and what we're going to do all the time, 10,000 years and then forevermore, because we don't want to leave here. Everybody wants to go to heaven, but nobody wants to go now. Kenny Chesney, the great theologian, said that. <laughs> and yet the more years I have, the more I long for a place where there are no shootings, where nobody burns a menorah, where no children are traumatized by the fear of war and the loss of everything that is stable and good to them, where disease is rampant and, and acid rain falls from the skies, where we as people profane God's name by our gross attitudes and actions, I'm sick of my own sin and the ways that I consistently fall short. I'm tired of waiting and wondering and hoping while life itself is falling short of my expectations. How exactly is this picture going to come to be? I mean, I'm on a little bit of a rant right now, so I'm just going to keep going. But how is it going to happen that all of a sudden we're supposed to just be these great people? What's going to be different than it was for Adam and Eve? I mean, God was literally there in person with those people. They got to talk to the animals. 
I got the coolest, most perfect place ever. And they messed it up. Hello? So the only thing that I can see that's different, and it's a big thing, is that Jesus died and rose again. That's the only thing that's different. Jesus was victorious over sin and death. And if you believe in Jesus, I pray that the reason you are here today is because of the resurrection. It's the resurrection that we hinge our lives on. That is the hope of new life. When we believe in the God who came to save. But at this time of year, we just want the baby in the manger. <laughs> we want the angels and the shepherds and the sweet little family and the tradition and the choruses and the cookies, whatever. But Advent doesn't let us get away with that. Uh-uh, you guys. Advent is about the light coming into the dark spaces. That's what we talked about the first week. And Advent is about life coming to those spaces where it seems like there's only death or there's nothingness. That's what we talked about last week. And today, we focus how Advent is about the future that we are going to have. We focus often on the waiting, which is right because we are people who need to be reminded that waiting is holy and good and teaches our souls to be expectant and to trust in our magnificent Savior. But what are we waiting for? This picture in Isaiah is really something because it shows us a joyful place that God is waiting and wanting to give his people. So for a few minutes, let's just talk about how Isaiah's community might have heard this and why this would have been important to them. You see, these are inspiring, majestic promises of God's future world. There's so much light, so much light, light, unbelievable light that you can't even comprehend God's everlasting light. This is in contrast, Isaiah's writer says, to the places covered in darkness. God's city has become a beacon of light that draws all people and is a source for them to see where they should go. The star that guided the wise men. People will be drawn to the light that emanates from the very person of God. In a reversal of fortune, Jerusalem will be filled with flocks and offerings and wealth and silver and lumber and camels and gold and frankincense and myrrh. This is often an epiphany sermon. There will be honor to God with praises. All kinds of people come into the city to glorify the Lord. The gates will be open day and night, which means they're not worried about anyone attacking them. The best of the earth will be given to God in honor. There'll be no more hatred or violence or mourning. The people who dwell in the land will be righteous. The sun and the moon won't be needed anymore. They can take a rest. They just get to hang out as a celestial body. The people's hearts will be thrilled and rejoice. This is a picture of harmony and abundance and peace. But most of all, true honor and worship of the Lord. See, Yahweh perhaps wanted to show those who had been uprooted and cast out that they were going to have a new future, that he was going to remake the broken, hurting, and out-of-control world that they lived in. The people were finally home, but it didn't feel like home. Everything was decimated. Their relationships were in tatters. They were frustrated with the whole situation. They needed to have some hope. So then we think, well, our theme is like, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Isaiah's preparing the people for something. It's passages like this that help us see why the people 
of Jesus' day were longing for a military ruler. Because it's basically promised here. If you read it, that's basically what is being promised here. The nations will come to you, it says. Jerusalem. Jerusalem, the nations will come to you and everyone is going to be subject under you. Those who were oppressed will come and give you everything you deserve because now you're going to be in charge. While Mary's revolutionary song tells how God is going to lift up the humble and scatter the proud because of the child in her womb, the angel who came to announce the Savior said the baby would bring peace and goodwill. So which is it? The Christ who came from heaven modeled and taught servanthood. His kingdom would not raise up a sword because the foundation of his kingdom was love of God and love of one another. Jesus didn't come with retribution in his heart or payback on his mind, but there is no doubt who was in charge. There is no doubt that the change is going to come and will supersede and put down the arrogant whims and the injustices and the holy act, unholy actions of all the nations. All the people come streaming into the city. Can you close your eyes? Can you see it? Can you see the light coming from Jerusalem and all of the people streaming in with all of the best things, all of their treasures? coming in because that's where God is. Yes, it's Jerusalem because that's where he chose to be. But the focus, the focus is not the city. The focus is the Savior who comes to appoint peace as our overseer and righteousness as our taskmaster. We don't want to miss the Holy One. What Yahweh brings, no human can achieve by war or by being good or by all the power or all the money that we have. It is only through the cross of Christ that we have new life and that our souls, our souls can fly free. And physically, we will see that one day. Part of the issue about heaven for us, I think, this is my humble opinion, <laughs> Stop it. <laughs> Part of the issue we have about heaven is the same thing that people struggle to understand about Jesus and his kingdom. Because often our vision of heaven is how we see it, how we picture it, how we will benefit, what we want. Yes, Jesus goes to prepare a place for us, and we will experience a revival in our souls and end to suffering and disappointment. No more death, no more need to claw our way through life and survive. But the praise and the honor and the glory and the power belong to God. The emphasis isn't on who we are or what we want, but who the Almighty is and who he's making us to be. It will be a glorious place, but the point is not our comfort or our experience or reconnecting with the people that we love. The point is that the one whose love is abundant and free we are drawn to that. He draws us by his light. We need the grace and the freedom and the healing offered from the lamb who sits on the throne. These prophetic words call us to notice the glory of the Lord being risen up to bring a new day. God, God is speaking here. So we are on holy ground. These are words of blessing and hope and promise that are meant to bring joy to those who are struggling on earth to imagine a vastly, vastly different realm. 
We do not get what we deserve. We receive abundance from the Lord, our everlasting light, as the grief and the sorrows of this earthly life will fade away. The same God who tore open the heavens to live on earth. The same God who tore open the veil of the temple, whose resurrection tore open the sting of death, is the one who is preparing a place for us. In Advent, we wait. Just as the people of Isaiah waited for this picture to come true, so do we. We wait for Jesus to come again and bring us to the place that he wants. I'm not really sure what I wanted from Denny that day. It felt like kind of a confessional more than anything. It felt safe to tell him this thing that had been bothering me. In his laughter, I actually felt relieved <laughs> that it was okay. As I pondered it a little bit now, I think a little bit about how entitled I sounded. The king of glory offering a wondrous place for me to come and live with him, not just for a few days or years, but forever. And I'm worried that I'm going to be bored and that it's going to be dreadful. Really, Colleen? Recently, we walked with a married couple who are in the later years of their life, and one of them is getting to a point where they may need more care. So they're thinking about moving from their house into assisted living. As details were being talked over, the one who needs the medical issues turned to the other one and said, but it means that we might have to leave our home. Are you okay with that? And the other one teared up and said, it doesn't matter where we are as long as I get to be with you. You see, this is a perfect picture of what I want my attitude about heaven to be. I just want to be with Jesus. So it doesn't matter if I'm camping in primitive conditions by a sewer or living in a cot in the ugliest, smallest place imaginable. Jesus told the thief on the cross who believed in him, today you will be with me in paradise. And we often focus on the word paradise. But we're meant to focus on the being with Jesus part. The God who created you knows everything about you and is delighted in you just because you belong to him. This is the Savior who wants to spend eternity with you. I want to end with a quote from the late 16th century English poet, John Donne. I shall rise from the dead. I shall see the Son of God, the Son of glory and shine myself as the sun shines. I shall be united to the ancient of days, to God himself, the God who had no morning, who never began. No man ever saw God and lived, and yet I shall not live till I see God. And when I have seen him, I shall never die. Amen. Thank you for listening. If you would like to learn more about the Free Methodist Church of Santa Barbara, you can visit us online at fmcsb.org. We pray this message has been a blessing to you.